Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The scope of Nazi crime spans an enormous range, from the unscrupulous to the unimaginable atrocities we know as the Holocaust. In her novel, The Night Portrait, Laura Morelli addresses the immorality of valuables looted by the Nazis as Hitler amasses art for his high command and a grand museum at Linz. We'll hear from the author about her novel of Da Vinci's Italy and World War II later this hour. First, bearing witness with a survivor now living in Atlanta, Seventy-five years after the end of World War II, the remaining number of Holocaust survivors is small, and most of those people are quite elderly, many in their 90s. Atlantan Robert Ratonyi is among the younger survivors at age 83. He's written a memoir titled From Darkness into Light, and joins us now via Zoom. Robert Ratonyi, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. What motivated you to write about your early life? It happened right soon after my second grandson was born in 2002. And I started thinking that I need to introduce my grandchildren to the stories, the roots of their grandfather and grandmother, just like my children, they were born in America. And I wanted them to know the details of what I went through and what some of their family members went through. I wrote the stories. Uh, I made a list of interesting things that happened. And the list included four or five items of uh, the Holocaust from the time I was born to uh, when we were liberated by the Red Army of the Soviet Union when I was seven years old, living under the communist dictatorship for 11 or 12 years, then a spontaneous uprising that took place when I was a freshman at the university, and then the escape, and then that was it. And I would have stopped there except for Jim Montgomery, a friend of mine here in Atlanta. He was for 30 years a reporter and an editor for the Wall Street Journal. He agreed to edit my stories. There's one more story I I think would be interesting, and that is immigrant life. So that was the last story. And the motivation back to publishing came almost 10 years later as a result of me being discovered in Atlanta as a child Holocaust survivor. And I got a call from the Bremen Holocaust Museum and he told me that they would very much like me to go in and meet the staff that's in charge of the educational program where they bus in 10 to 14,000 school children every year. And they typically have two hours for these kids 
one hour is given to a Holocaust survivor. They listen to a Holocaust survivor, and the next hour they visit the museum, the Holocaust Museum. And would I be willing to consider speaking about this? And I said, look, I, I never spoke about it. Now you want me to speak about it publicly. It's, it's very sensitive and it's a very emotional. I don't know if I can do it, but now that I know about the program, I put together a PowerPoint presentation and that's when I became a regular speaker at the Holocaust Museum. Now, fast forward 10 years, I've spoken to about 15,000 children and I got invited by the Georgia Commission on the Holocaust. And so that was the motivation for writing the book. Separately from writing the stories, a totally different motivation. I had no intention of making money at it. And my wife and I discussed it. And I said, all royalties from the sale of the book will be donated to our favorite uh, charitable organizations in Atlanta. The book is divided into five stories, each labeled a journey. You point out early on that you were an unwitting participant in major historical events of the 20th century, beginning with the horror of the Nazi Holocaust. What immediate impact did that have on you as a child and your parents? Well, the impact was terrible. Uh, um, first of all, I, I, I was six years old when I had to witness that my mother being forcibly taken away. I, the last time I saw my father when I was four years old, and he was inscripted in the labor battalion when he was in his, uh, I guess, uh, early 30s. And then after 1942, I never saw him again. We didn't know the word Holocaust, but the final solution, as the Germans called it, the official name of the program of, of uh, the genocide of uh, uh, six million Jews, the official name was the final solution. And the final, final solution didn't really get to Hungary until 1944, when I was six years old. And the very first thing that I experienced was when my mother had to sew a yellow star on my coat. And I was in March of 19, I believe in March of 1944, one of the new anti-Semitic laws that were legally passed by the parliament. Remember that Hungary was an ally of Germany at that time. And uh, I had to wear a yellow star and I didn't know why, by then I didn't quite understand it. All of a sudden uh, I was different than all my other friends who were at my age that I used to play with. And the impact of the war was, uh, was very clear uh, because the bombing of Budapest started in the middle of 1944 by the Allies, the Americans and the British. And then the most important and, and most hurtful thing that happened to me that left an indelible mark uh, on my psychic, I guess, is when one day in October, October 10, 1944, when the new, the new Nazi uh, virulently anti-Semitic uh, party was given to govern Hungary, the Arrow Cross Party, they immediately started the deportation of the Jews of Budapest, where most of my family, a lot of the family, my mother's family and my father, father's family were deported and sent to Auschwitz. The first phase of the final solution took place in about six weeks in the early summer when 450 to 500,000 Jews were transported and deported out of Hungary, 450,000 of them went to Auschwitz. It's that staggering. It's an absolutely staggering number. And I was hoping that you would touch upon why it was so late in the war. Oh. Into the summer of 1944, this is after the invasion of Normandy. Exactly. 
Why was the rounding up of Hungarian Jews so much later than the people of Poland or well, other countries? The reason why that happened is that because Hungary was an ally of Germany. So the program was in place and started in 1942. But because of the relationship between the Germ Germans and the Hungarian government, the Hungarian Jews were relatively safe. Only those who were conscripted into labor battalions, like my father earlier in 1942, were missing already. By the time 1944 came along, everybody knew that the war was lost, that Germany is going to lose the war. The Hungarian politicians actually tried to make peace with the British behind Hitler, and he discovered that and, uh, and, and got very upset and uh, sent Eichmann to come to Budapest in early 1944 to personally see to it that the Hungarian Jews are taken care of. In early 44, late 43, the Hungarian Jews thought that they can simply survive the war and it's going to end soon. Everybody thought that, that the Allies will come in sooner than they did. They expected that they will march right through and liberate the central part of Europe, including Hungary. Of course, none of that happened. When Eichmann came to Budapest in uh, March of, uh, I think it was March of 44, he insisted on an immediate implementation of the final solution and they divided that into two phases. Phase one was to take care of the country outside of Budapest, because Budapest had the largest concentration of Jews, about 230,000 Jews. In. And it was easier to go into smaller cities and smaller towns. And everybody knew who the Jews were. Uh, they put them into some ghettos and then moved them from there directly to the train stations and transported them out of Hungary. The whole thing took six weeks, 450,000 Jews. And, and then it was in October of 1944 that you experienced the worst nightmare of your yes. six-year-old life. Yes. When something happens to you, what's known in the psychological field as a significant emotional event, it leaves, it's, it's a sort of like a permanent uh, mark in your psyche. And I can see and feel as if all of a sudden I time traveled back and I'm a six-year-old child. And that's the most difficult part about talking about it. And it's very difficult to overcome it. But four o'clock in the morning, the Nazis came in our house. And that's when my mother was taken away. They took us out to the courtyard. Everybody had to get dressed. But what happened was everybody lined up. They told everybody single line. And then they said two step forward to the grown-ups and turn left and march. And that was the last time I saw my mother until the summer of 1945. So that was a very, very important part of the story. Yes, she survived unspeakable horrors. How long did it take her to recover her physical health? It took, took a long time, and she was very lucky because her best friend who lived near us in the same district where we lived uh, was a very strong person. I, I knew her, got to know her real well after the war. She managed to become uh, one of the servants of the camp, and they marched these thousands of women on foot to Austria into a labor camp for women, Jewish women. And this friend of my mother was able to smuggle some extra food for my mother so that she wouldn't starve to death. First of all, many of them died during the march. Uh, anybody who fell down could march. They left them there or shot them, killed them right there. And my mother, I guess, was okay. She made it to Austria. But then she became very ill, and she had typhus and some other illnesses and was near death when they were finally liberated in uh, January 1945. Now, of course, I knew nothing about this. I didn't have a father, didn't have a mother, and, uh, and I myself was uh, near starvation in the Budapest ghetto. So what happened was my mother was so ill 
after liberation that they couldn't transport her. There were no trains, first of all, uh, and, uh, and there were no buses, and uh, she was too sick to even put on a, on a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon to travel. So the first time that I learned that she was alive was in the early summer of 1945. And uh, then I was taken back to Budapest and that's when we reunited but i didn't recognize her she had no hair and she mm. was very skinny and uh, it, it took her then then they took her to a hospital in budapest and she was in a hospital for a month or so before she was well enough to come home and then went back to live in our old apartment that we vacated on literally the same day she was taken taken away because I was left there by myself. I was just very lucky that a f older Jewish lady, a friend of my mother, uh, she found me by myself and told me to put my clothes into a bag. And she said, I'm going to take you to your grandparents' place. And basically that's, that's how I survived. I have no idea what would have happened to me if she didn't take me to my grandparents' place. Um, I appreciate the time you have spent on this most painful part. What was it like growing up under communism? I didn't truly appreciate living under a communist regime, probably until I was a high school student when I started, I got somewhat exposed to the Western world, if you wish. And my mother had a friend uh, in our neighborhood, Mrs. Klein, who survived, her husband didn't, but she had a, she spoke several languages and very educated woman, and she had a library of great literature, some of it Western literature. And she would give me books to read, and I started reading about what the rest of the world looks like, because during the communist everything was censored and we could only read what the communist regime allowed us to read and i started learning about what's going on in the rest of the world through my books and there was no television radio newspaper it was all propaganda about the glorious thing about communism and how the communists will take over the world and fight the uh, bourgeois imperialistic west and particularly america and i started thinking about uh, this and I started listening to two radio stations that we were not supposed to. One was Voice of America and Radio Free Europe, which was funneling information into the Eastern countries about what the West, what what's going on in the rest of the world. And I realized that there's a, there's such a thing as freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, religious, freedom of uh, thought, freedom of assembly, none of this existed under the communist regime. Everything was described, come down from the top down, and it was all directed by from Moscow. You were a good student and entered the university. In 1956, there was a Hungarian uprising. How did that affect the course of your life? That changed my life completely because I was a freshman at the Technical University, and that's where the peaceful march on October 23rd started, then turned into a bloody riot. I mean, I was naive still. I was just a freshman, 18 years old. Uh, I found myself caught up in it. A friend of mine and I went to the local police station where we lived that was opened up, and the police was handing guns out to anybody who wanted it. And uh, naively, I thought that, uh, you know, we can actually fight for the freedom of Hungary and it could become a free country. And interestingly, it did become a free country for about three, four weeks because the Russians got off guard and they were surprised. And the secret police tried to put down the revolt, but they couldn't. The army refused to support them. They refused to kill or shoot ordinary Hungarians like the students and the workers who were caught up in this revolution. I discovered that a couple of my close friends that I knew since I was a kid 
escaped from Hungary because the border was open for about four weeks or five weeks. And that made an impression on me. And I asked for my mother's permission if she would be okay if I escaped. And with a close friend of mine, and he and I decided that we'll make a run for it in December. By that time, the Russians came back and the revolt was put down and the border was being sealed. So it was rather dangerous. My mother decided that she didn't want to come with me, that maybe she'll come after me. And uh, we just planned our escape through the border to the western border of Hungary into Austria. And uh, it was an interesting trip that, of course, changed the whole course of my life. I just knew that I wanted to get educated and I wanted to a country that where I can become uh, an educated person. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the American quota for Hungarian refugees was filled by the time I got to the American embassy. We ended up in Canada and I became a Canadian immigrant. Uh, they flew us to Canada in February 1957. And you met your wife in Montreal. Yes, uh, we met. Uh, it was a typical immigrant story. I spoke no English. I arrived in February and I was planning to go to university by September if I learned enough English. And so my focus was to learn the language. But what happened was, as far as the social life was concerned, we could only talk to Hungarians. And there was a, a, a quite a bit of Hungarian immigrant community, a lot of people who escaped in 1956, a lot of Jewish people. And so I had a lot of friends there that I met in Montreal. And uh, that's how I met Eva on a blind date. And I guess I met her just before her 16th birthday. So it must have been late 1959, because by then our English was good enough. And uh, I was already studying at night at the local university and she was in high school so that's how that's how we met from montreal you completed a degree from mit i, I got my bachelor's degree and then i stayed on to get my master's degree and i was going to go to the sloan school of uh, management at mit but even i got married by that time and we had David was born in 1964. So I had to go to work and uh, I got my business degree in uh, at Drexel University in Philadelphia where I had my first job at General Electric. Bob, you started out talking about how when you set out to write this memoir, it was strictly for your grandchildren and your progeny and no intention of making it a, into a published book. Ultimately, what did you gain personally from writing this memoir? What happened to me during the Holocaust and during the communist regime, but particularly the Holocaust story, all those bad memories were sort of locked up in a safe and I threw the keys away because we never talked about it. I, I grew up there. I don't, uncles and aunts who survived. The subject never, ever came up. We, it was taboo. We didn't talk about it. But it was there and uh, it was like a tremendous relief, like a change to get something out of my system that, that I no longer have to keep it as a secret. And I really, really think that one of the major things that happened to articulate those feelings and those experiences, all the hurts, all the pain, and some of the good things too, because finally this, this secret came out. It was like carrying this baggage on my back and finally getting rid of this. It's something that changed me obviously in many ways. And, and, and it obviously had something to do with my, my character, my personality, and my beliefs, and, uh, and how I feel about discrimination, how I feel about the rule of law, and how minorities need to be treated. And I, I really fell in love with America. I could quote you from the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, because I, I realized that 
the Holocaust was just one of the many genocides of the 20th century. There were as many as, as, many as 24 to 30 genocides. The Holocaust was not even the largest one because the Chinese and the Russian genocides took many more million people, killed many more million people. And I studied this and I came to the conclusion that all these genocides, I was looking for the common thread, why the genocides happen. And the only common thread I found out, found in studying 20th century genocides and some in the 21st century, unfortunately too, that not a single genocide like the Holocaust ever happened in a liberal democracy. Not a single one. This is a special country. There are very, very few countries that you can come to from another country, not, not know, know the language, and actually become a citizen of the country in a true sense. I feel like America is built on immigrants and that's our background, that's our history. And I felt at home and I feel at home and I feel as American as, as anybody else. Robert Rattonier is the author of From Darkness to Light, My Journey Through Nazism, Fascism, and Communism to Freedom. The book is available now. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The Night Portrait by Laura Morelli, is a novel set during the darkness of World War II and the illumination of Renaissance Italy. Leonardo da Vinci is central to both of those settings. The author joins us now via Zoom. Laura Morelli, welcome to City Light. Hello, Lois. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm an Atlanta native, so this is really fun for me. Thank you for having me. Please tell us how this story brings together two very different eras, 500 years apart. So the night portrait centers around Leonardo da Vinci's famous portrait of the lady with the ermine. And it's a fascinating portrait, not only for Leonardo da Vinci's time, but also later. Um, portrait itself really is the center of the story. And it's what drew me to this tale because I realized that this beautiful portrait of this compelling young woman holding a white furry creature in her lap had an incredible story behind it, not only in the 15th century, but also in the 20th, when it became the object of desire of a, a very powerful man. Mm. Now, I noticed that you often end a chapter with a sentence that repeats as the introduction to the next chapter in a different time period. That device translated to musical form for me, a recurring theme or leitmotiv. Would you talk about how you arrived at using that? Yeah, that's. I'm so glad that you found that a compelling aspect of the story because, you know, if you think about it, it's tricky to pull together two such incredibly different eras. Um, and I was looking for a way to 
tie the story of the two women in the book in particular, Cecilia Gallerani, who is the mistress of the de facto Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, and then a curator in the 1930s and 40s in Germany, who is tasked with this impossible task of stealing works of art um, on behalf of the Nazis. And so that was a way of linking the two time periods and trying to pull the reader through the five centuries that separated these two women. That's very effective. The chapters alternate between the time periods. Would you talk about the alternating points of view? Leonardo begins the story, and his chapters are told in the first person. That's right. Um, there are four narrators in this story, Leonardo da Vinci being the first one, and he um, does speak as if he's talking to the reader um, and talks in the first person. The other characters use a different point of view. They, we hear the story as if you know it's from the past. And uh, the other three characters are Cecilia Gallerani, who is the subject of this portrait of the lady with the ermine. And then in the 20th century, we have two points of view. Again, one woman and one man. And um, the woman is a fictionalized curator in Germany. And she was based on some real historical figures who had this impossible task, as I said, of, of taking works of art on behalf of the Nazis. And then the fourth protagonist is a fictionalized monuments man. You probably are familiar with the, with the book and the wonderful movie about the, the monuments men. And so my Dominic in the story is based on um, one of the men whose job it was to find all of these works of art that the Nazis had, had hidden and bring them back. And so one of the fantastic parts of the story of the lady with the ermine is that the painting was stolen in 1939, but then it actually was returned uh, back to its original owner after the war. And the Monuments Men were instrumental in making that happen. So it's, uh, like I said, it's such a fabulous story. You know, you can't make it up, but, you know, certainly there are parts that we don't know. And that's the fun of being a historical novelist is making up those parts that we don't know. Leonardo's brilliance as a painter seems to matter less to him in your depiction than his engineering and architectural talent. Why did you emphasize the genius inventor in your portrayal of Leonardo? There's a letter that survives to the present day in an archive in Milan that is a letter that Leonardo da Vinci sent to Ludovico Sforza, this de facto Duke of Milan in the 1480s, in which it's sort of like a resume. He lists all of his skills uh, that he could provide to the Duke. And they're about, they're about 15 lines in this letter, you know, and it says, you know, your, your lordship, these are the things that I can provide for you. And it's a, it's a laundry list of things like um, defensible bridges that he could design, something that we might imagine would be sort of like an armored tank, if you can imagine what that might have looked like in, in Leonardo da Vinci's time. He talks about um, things that he can engineer to prevent Milan from being attacked by water or by land. And at the very end of this laundry list, he says, oh, and by the way, if there's no war going on, I can also paint. And so, you know, as up for us today, looking back, that's just hilarious. But um, I do think looking back at Leonardo's writings, and I always start with primary sources when I start a research project, I do think that he really saw himself primarily as an engineer and a scientist and the the painting and the drawing was sort of part of that but it it wasn't necessarily always at the forefront of his mind and so at this in this story i tried to depict this poor man who was struggling with trying to do something really 
lasting and great in the scientific and engineering and military field. He was so obsessed with military designs, which made it sort of an interesting parallel with the World War II story in and of itself. And then to see what his legacy is, his legacy is are these paintings of these mysterious women of the 15th and 16th centuries. And uh, so it was sort of a paradox for me and something that was interesting to explore. Well, I absolutely loved that part of the book. And I was going to ask you about that letter on page 91, where he itemizes everything he can do. And only the final item is, I can execute sculpture in marble, bronze, and clay, likewise in painting. I can do everything possible as well as any other, and then signs it in humility, if you will. I thought you fictionalized that. No, it's a real letter, and it's it's amazing. I mean, you know, that's such that's such the joy and the the drama of studying art history is coming across things like that. And, um, you know, things that, that are just such great stories that you couldn't make up. And so I look at historical fiction sort of like one of those giant multi-thousand piece puzzles that you probably got as a kid in a big box. And, you know, if you imagine getting one of those boxes with about half the pieces missing, that's sort of what it's like to take on a project like this book. You have all these pieces that you know, you know, the pieces that go on the corners and the edges and the, the bigger images that you can recognize from the picture on the cover of the box. But then there's all this stuff that's missing. And um, so that's the fun of piecing it all together. But that particular letter is a real letter. And I, and I tried to transcribe it word for word in the book. In fact, Laura, you earned a PhD in art history from Yale and taught at the college level. How did your advanced knowledge of art inform this novel? I think that it definitely informs the research behind it. Um, I always start, as I said, with primary sources. I think they're, it's fascinating to read what people wrote about a work of, of painting or sculpture, architecture at the time. Uh, you see it through completely different eyes. In the 15th century, people had a very different view even of what art was um, than we do now. And so certainly that art historical training informed my research. I always read all the scholarly sources. I've read every scholarly article now about Da Vinci's Lady with the Ermine and it's all of the times it's been x-rayed and the, the you know, types of pigments that Leonardo da Vinci used and, and preparatory drawings and interpretations of what the heck that ermine means and <laughs> all of the mysterious aspects that scholars try to, um, to study about a work like this. But at the end of the day, I feel like as a historical novelist, if I've done my job, then all of that research disappears. It sort of is invisible, if that makes sense. Because at the end of the day, it has to be a good story. The reader has to care about what happens to the characters. So no matter how much art historical research I've done, you know, that's really the primary job is to tell a great story. Is Italian Renaissance art your specialty area? I studied the Middle Ages and Renaissance, and I love this period. And I think that it's it's fascinating because it is so rich in, in primary sources. There's so much to read, even though, of course, there are lots of things we don't know. There's, uh, there's so much to study. There's so much tangible that we can hold on to in the Italian Renaissance. You know, we have uh, legal accounts that are fascinating, that, that give you a peek into what people you know, thought was egregious in the, in the society and, you know, rules that were broken that are fascinating to read. There are um, artist contracts that you can read and you can see what the patrons cared about, you know, and, and how they paid their artists. So many things. So it's, it's a great period to work in. Georgia author Laura Morelli. We'll hear more about her novel, The Night Portrait, after a quick break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. 
This is City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the Georgia-based author Laura Morelli. Her recent book is The Night Portrait, a novel of World War II and Da Vinci's Italy. The story is told in a dual timeline. From the World War II setting of the book, here we begin with a description of the main character. Edith's story begins in 1939 in Munich. She is a conservator. She restores paintings, and later in the novel, restoring paintings to their rightful owners becomes her quest. Is that why you made her specialty the restoration of art? Yes, I, part of the interest for me in the World War II characters was to imagine what it might be like to be someone, be the person who was tasked with stealing um, a portrait by Leonardo da Vinci or any of the other works of art that the Nazis took um, at the beginning of the war. and. If you ever want to read something uh, something incredible, you know, go read about all of the works of art that, that the Nazis took at the beginning of World War II. The scale of that effort is absolutely staggering. And I thought about all of the art professionals across Germany who were conscripted into this effort. Um, there were some people, art historians, curators, museum directors, conservators who were conscripted into this effort. And then there were many, um, you know, more people lower on the totem pole in museums like my fictionalized Edith, who were just quietly working away. Many of them were, um, you know, modest, introverted people who maybe had gone to study art or art history. Um, Kajistan Mulman, who was one of the, the leaders of this effort to, to take works of art, had a PhD in art history like I do. He, he wrote his dissertation on the Baroque fountains of Salzburg, Austria. I can only imagine he could have never dreamed in his wildest dreams that he would one day head up this massive effort to steal works of art from all across Eastern Europe. And so that in itself was fascinating to me to imagine that happening to a character. And, um, you know, with Edith in particular, I thought it was interesting to think about her as someone who really cared about the survival of works of art, um, which is why I decided to make her a conservator working in this laboratory, this quiet little laboratory in the basement of, um, of a museum in Munich. And then she's pulled into this, this uh, thing that was so much bigger than her. Hmm. The next narrator we meet is Cecilia, whose story begins 450 years before Edith's. Cecilia is the subject of da Vinci's portrait, and she is a richly developed character. Did your research for this book reveal much about her, or is her life entirely imagined by you? We know a few things about Cecilia Gallerani. We know that she came from a Sienese family. Um, her father was kind of a um, low-level uh, diplomat at the court of Milan, which is probably how she ended up catching the eye of Ludovico Sforza. She was destined to, uh, for a life in a convent in Milan, but somehow she managed to turn Ludovico Sforza's head and instead she was pulled into the ducal castle as his mistress. We know that. Uh, we know also some things about her later life. Uh, we know that she was probably pushed out of the castle, not uh, within a, a couple of years of being pulled in. And we know that she uh, did not end up going to the convent after all, which is what often happened with uh, in situations like this. 
but she instead married uh, another Ludovico, not too far from Milan, and um, had many children and was celebrated as an important um, center of culture. She and her, her home and her, her small court in Lombardy were celebrated as a center for the arts. She, we know that she was a musician, that she was a writer, and that she invited people into her court there. And so we know that's pretty much the extent of what we know about her. We know she lived to, um, you know, an older age, that she had lots of children. We know some things about her children, but that's pretty much it. We really don't know any specifics or details about what happened behind the walls of that castle when she was there as the mistress of Ludovico Sforza. And, um, and when she sat before Leonardo da Vinci, all of that is unknown. And so part of the fun of, of Cecilia's story was imagining what might have happened behind those walls. Well, you depict her as far more than a beauty. She loves all forms of art and had been yearning for a life filled with riches that go beyond material wealth. Will you describe da Vinci's portrait of Cecilia now. Well, if you're home listening to this, I hope you'll go on Google and just Google da Vinci lady with the ermine and you'll probably say, oh yes, I've seen that portrait. It's it's a an image that most people, you know, if I pull it up on my phone and show someone, they say, oh yes, I know that portrait, I've seen it. It's a, a beautiful, peaceful portrait with an almost, um, completely black background, although that's probably what, uh, not what Leonardo originally painted, uh, that that severe black background. It might have originally had a background sort of like the Mona Lisa with a very atmospheric landscape. In any case, the subject herself is a lively looking young lady who is turned in sort of three quarter view. She looks as if maybe she's just noticed something at the windowsill, like a bird flitting by or someone walking by. Um, there's there's a, an incredible vivacity to the moment that Leonardo da Vinci has captured. Uh, she's dressed in what would have been considered, you know, the, the cutting edge of, uh, of the, the late 15th century. She's uh, dressed in a very severe kind of um, dress that it doesn't have a lot of embellishment. The Milanese back then, as they are today, were, were sort of known for this severe elegance. She has her hair pulled back and she's carrying this white fluffy ermine, which is something like a ferret. It was a wild creature. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about uh, ermines in his notebooks, which is fascinating. And we, we know that um, he talked a little bit about the symbolism of them. Um, but the, the ermine itself ha has a multi-layered interpretation and meaning, which is something that is part of the story, but um, is certainly something that has fascinated art historians as well. Um, it was, it's the portrait that now hangs in the National Gallery in Krakow in Poland. Uh, the, it was purchased at some point in the um, 1700s by a noble Polish family, and it was in their private collection until it was taken by the Nazis in 1939. Hmm. I especially enjoyed the portion where you describe Leonardo's technique of applying paint with his finger. Is that common knowledge? I don't know how, how common it is. Um, we know that it's true. We can see his fingerprints on numerous paintings. Um, we think that that's probably in part the way that he achieved these fumato effects, you know, this very smoky, veiled, thin layers of paint and varnish. And uh, so you can just sort of picture in your head him standing at an easel and applying some color with a brush and then coming behind with his fingers and sort of blending the colors together. And that's that makes someone so famous at remote seem human, I think, which is a fascinating detail. I really loved being a fly on the wall in that part of the book. 
Dominic is the fourth character, the American soldier who lands on Omaha Beach during the invasion of Normandy in 1944. He happens to love drawing, though he works in a coal mine in Pennsylvania, and he has a baby girl named Cecilia. What role does Dominic play in this story? So Dominic is um, conscripted into the war effort as a private. Um, you know, certainly by 1944, the Americans were well, well, well aware of the Nazi atrocities. Um, he lands on the Normandy beaches ready to do a job, committed and dedicated to do what he has to do so that he can turn around and go back to his wife and his baby as soon as possible. But as Dominic is assigned in a military police unit to a unit of uh, monuments men, he becomes more aware of the larger allied effort to try to save and restitute these masterpieces from around Europe. And Dominic's story is really about this conflict between the value of a work of art and the value of a human life. And Dominic continues to question that throughout the story of, you know, what's more important, saving people or saving works of art? And, you know, he's not a very well-educated man. He's, um, you know, as you said, he's a coal miner from Pittsburgh, um, but he does, uh, he's of Italian origin and he loves to draw. And so he has this artistic sensibility and he becomes fascinated with what the Monuments Men are doing. And in the end, he plays a really important role. Yes, he does. His name is Bonelli, yours is Morelli. Any intentional similarity? Well, the um, part of the Morellis immigrated um, to Pittsburgh and worked in the mines. And so that was um, kind of a, a detail that came to me automatically <laughs> as uh, for this character. And uh, so I, I do feel a certain affinity with Dominic. I feel like I know him. I feel like I've met him, you know, that I've talked with him. He seems very real to me. Georgia author Laura Morelli. Her book is The Night Portrait, a novel of World War II and Da Vinci's Italy. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, artist Danielle Detweiler will tell us about her new exhibition at the Mint Gallery. Will to Adorn was inspired by the city of Atlanta's legacy of the washerwomen's strike of 1881. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.